Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree What is Patrick McGoon's favorite Jordan Peele movie? Uh, I, I think I know this. Get up! <laughs> God damn it! I, I workshopped that joke in private for eight months because it's uh, it doesn't work as better if you just it. go us. It doesn't really. It doesn't really have the same hit. It doesn't really. CBS uh, Twilight Zone. You know, it doesn't really doesn't. <laughs> Key and Peele. Nope. <laughs> yep. Nope. 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 Letters, we get letters, uh-huh. we get letters infrequently, but we do get them. <laughs> Ones and zeros somehow arranging themselves in the form of an epistle. Uh-huh. So let's read a few. Cool. You want me to start? Why don't you? Would you? Okay. This I'm only going to do me a kindness. Half of this because uh, okay. this is from Philip R. Uh, and the oh, second half of this is a big... Protecting your, your confidential sources. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it, it, he's, 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 he's blue sky thinking here. He's, he's uh, shooting a shot. He's doing a lot of uh, theories. One of those theories kind of ties a little too directly into something that happens in Fallout, which we'll just pretend people don't know what happens in Fallout, so I'll save that for when we do that particular episode. Of a personal take on who runs the village, and I'm surprised I haven't heard anyone say it, uh, the village is a joint project. It is run by both sides as a way of maintaining the balance of power in the world. It is easier to be against something than for something, and as long as the people living under each side can be against each other, they don't need to be necessary for their own. I don't mean that the particular people in charge of both sides run the village exactly, but rather the two superpower structure as a whole does. The strongest piece of evidence I have for this is the conversation an early number two, it would be our Mr. McKern, has with number six, in which number two says it doesn't matter who runs the village, says somewhat wistfully that they are both prisoners and expresses his own hope for the world. But both sides are becoming identical. What, in fact, has been created? An international community. A perfect blueprint for world order. When the sides facing each other suddenly realize that they're looking into a mirror, they will see that this is the pattern for the future. My interpretation is that the question of which side is in charge is fruitless because the answer can't help anyone inside because there is nowhere to escape to. This number two is capable enough and has accepted the situation enough to be trusted by his superiors in the position of number two, but he has also had his own reasons for cooperating. He sees in the village, despite its original purpose, something that is beneficially applicable to humankind and that perhaps his cooperation can help improve the world more than his resistance could. I suspect that he walks on the left side. Uh, and then he segues, he jetes easily into a mm-hmm. second theory about what's going on in the last episode. What do you think of that? We've talked about this many times. We do. Okay, I, I'm fixating on a on a minor point, but I, I suspect he walks on the on the left side. I didn't. I didn't. I just think that, that he's uh, you know he's the West. I think that just means he's from okay. The West. I think that's what that means. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this theory before that it is a global uh, power structure. It is some kind of global corp cooperation. I. Th- think the answer is not going to be forthcoming i also don't think there i don't think there's an answer that goes beyond the allegory but what do you think that's it i think it is a riddle with no answer mcguin said as much to uh, lou grade um, when mm-hmm. he was under the gun to come up with some kind of conclusion once again as i've said many times i think this is why markstein quit mm-hmm. i think markstein probably wanted there to be a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh-huh. And he had the word story in his title. <laughs> he did. Wait, no, he was script editor, oh, right? I guess with so. script editor. I don't know. Which I that title is more commonly story editor, right? On a TV show. 
I mean, script editor sounds like a, a more like line edit <laughs> kind yeah. of kind of gig. Not like you're you're shaping the the arc of an entire season and working with individual writers on individual episodes. Not to be confused with um, something we have in the states: a script supervisor who is basically in charge of making sure everybody's reading the damn script and not doing anything that contradicts yeah. it and yada, yada yada. But that's also kind of a continuity thing, right? Right. It's very granular. That's on set, day to day, shot to shot. Mm-hmm. That's not looking at the arc of an entire season and right. making sure that it makes sense. Yep. But I'm vamping. I'm I'm hedging. I'm vacillating. That's really the only way to read that speech that McKern has in the second episode of the show uh, in, you know, the sequence in which it was shown back then and is uh, mostly shown now. Uh-huh. Um, back before Amazon paywalled it again, they had the Chimes of Big Ben coming up second. Uh-huh. That would explain the, the bit of dialogue at the end of Arrival with Cobb. Right, uh-huh. the, where we, we went over this already. The you know mustn't keep my new masters waiting. Long journey ahead. Au revoir, Afirazain. Yada yada yada. Give my regards to the homeland. Yeah, I mean this is a thing yeah. about revisiting this show as a weather-beaten, desiccated husk of a man, as opposed to a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young man. Where I thought there were clear answers. I thought this was a linear plot with a linear uh, answer. Uh, that it was carefully scripted and carefully thought out. And now I'm I'm resigned to the fact that it's a lot kind of wishier than that, a lot sloppier than that. Not sloppy. Yeah. Not sloppy. Squishy. Squishy is the word, not swishy. <laughs> Maybe we should approach this uh, excluding all of the actual circumstances of, of the creation of this show that we know about. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know about all the things that were done because Bagoon wasn't available or Port Marion wasn't available or, or the director <laughs> got fired before lunch or maybe we, we should... Um, work on our own essentialist theory that, that just integrates everything that, that made it into the frame. Our guest Ben Blacker pointed out that discarding an episode, <laughs> as Alex Cox does in constructing his theory, is not fair, uh-huh. not cricket, yep. out of bounds. So we should try to have to use all of the pieces right. to come up with the a solution. That'll be a fun, fun yeah. game for us. For, for it to work, a unified theory has to fit every... Um, circumstance uh, for the <laughs> yeah. large, large planet, right. and also you know sub microscopic, subatomic uh, connections, and, and oh, it, we... it doesn't it doesn't do that. There's no there's no there's no unified theory that does, and so just relax and think of England. That's what I say. All of this strife, all of all of these these various players and creators, whose attempts to to make this you know knowing only a part of it need to be reconciled somehow. That happened in such a compressed mm-hmm. span of time. The fact that, that so many of the, the screenwriters say that, you know, whatever minimal source document Markstein had, had come up with, which was, you know, supposedly only a few pages, mm-hmm. they didn't see it. They didn't right. get it. <laughs> they, you know, somehow they're turning in scripts where number six is romancing other villagers. It's a, it seems like there's there's just essential information about this character yeah. <laughs> that they are not getting <laughs> before they're, they're having a script commissioned. We'll revisit this when we get to Once Upon a Time, but it does strike me, I just watched it again recently, uh, it does strike me that Liam McKern, of all the number twos, of, of pretty much all other cast members, gets it. He is asked to do some very nonsensical things in that episode that he commits to completely. He seems to know exactly what McGowan's going for. And he, you know, <laughs> at some personal risk to his own health. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but yes, uh, I just think, you know, it, it's a lot to ask a journeyman actor who's in, who's like in for, you know, what, three days to film yeah. for him to kind of understand this existentialist conundrum inside of an enigma. <laughs> when when clearly the, the, the creator has not, made it all make sense for himself. This is another thing that, that Cox said, speculating that he hired the, McGowan hired the directors that he did because they were controllable. They were mm-hmm. journeymen, they were craftsmen, they were in most cases people who he'd worked with on Danger Man. Cox put it very memorably when he said they were the, the people who did the bits between monsters and Ray Harryhausen movies. Mm-hmm. These were not auteurs. These were not people who were going to bring a, a strong creative vision to the table that would potentially conflict with his, even though it sounds like he didn't really know what he wanted much of the time. Right. And we'll get to this when we get to Fallout. But to entrust an actor with the uh, kind of linchpin speech of that episode where much is explained and to say, you write it, I don't have time. 
That is... Wait, are we talking about McKern still? No. We're talking about the guy who plays the judge. We draw your attention to the regrettable bullet. That whole thing was apparently written by the actor. So Okay. Um, this is this is in Fallout. We haven't got Fallout, this yet. yes. This is, okay. this is in Fallout. When we get to Fallout You're this is flash forwarding. You're you are like the opening titles of, of Mission Impossible where we see little glimpses of what is to come, Glenn. In fact, in fact we are. Now that is either an act of complete intrinsic trust that you have cast the right person and that you believe this actor, or it's a cop out. Why not both? You know? Why not both is what I say. Yeah. I have watched once upon a time, uh, again, which we're gonna gonna talk about next week. Which uh, again, this is an episode that was was shown in the penultimate spot, but was made much earlier. Was shot more than a year ahead of when it was actually shown because it was intended to come much much earlier in the sequence. And after going through these latter day second production block episodes for a few weeks, it is striking to return to this much earlier phase of the show's production and just see the difference in the level of commitment that Magoon is bringing to it. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Certainly. He is fully present in a way that he, well, physically was not present for yeah. <laughs> at least one and a half at of the, the half. Uh, concluding four. But also, you know, just in terms of the, the level of investment, the, the commitment to the performance. We've talked about this over the last few weeks, how in the, these latter episodes, he, he really seems to have one foot out the door. You can see signs of mental and physical exhaustion uh, yeah. between them. All right, so that's, that's one question down. Good. <laughs> uh, doing great. Okay, well, this one is um, a much more uh, pithy notice of something that we probably should have twigged to Glenn from Steve M., Cool. Protecting his identity. Mm-hmm. Dear Glenn Chris, or is it Chris Glenn? I answered No both. one knows. I answered a both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. In Checkmate, Patricia Jessel, number 23, was memorable for her hilariously dry performance as Hero's mother in the film version of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1966. Hmm. Okay, so that would have been right before this, right? Okay, they and which shooting... one was she? Which one was she in that? Was she uh, the, the old lady Hero's with the Hero's mother? No, no, no. Oh, like, uh, number number twenty three, yeah. number twenty three in Checkmate. Patricia Jessel was the one who, in my recasting the show, I said was B. Arthur. Okay. She gives number eight the locket. Oh right. Yeah, she, uh, she's the one who informs number eight that she's in love with number six. Isn't he manly? manly? Yes. Okay. Yes. We hit that <laughs> at the same time. She's the one who is showing a, a truly interested in Peter Wingard, mm-hmm. uh, the transistor. Mm-hmm. Ah, the transistor. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, All that's right. good to know. This is this this is one um, we really should have gotten. In It's Your Funeral, Annette Andre, the, the watchmaker's daughter, mm-hmm. talked about her a lot, hated McGowan with the cause, also had a major role in Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum as heroes. Michael Crawford, okay, Michael Crawford was hero, as his love interest. Mm-hmm. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. This is on uh, my way to the forum, right? On my way to the forum. I, I think it's the way. Okay, all right. All right. Comedy tonight. No, I, I know. I mean, how that. would I know that? Because I've only ever seen Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. So how yeah. how am I like <laughs> singing? Unbidden. How am I singing the opening number of a Sondheim thing? Uh, yeah. And, uh, and you and I, Sondheim, you and I, but, uh, uh, listened to a man. Um, uh, what's his name? Vertel. What was his name? Paul Vertel. What was his name? Oh, uh, Jack. Jack Vertel. Okay. A critic turned producer turned teacher. Yes. And uh, one of his lessons is walking you through the structure and performance of a song from that show. Uh, everyone. Wants to have a maid. Wouldn't it be nice to have a maid? Everybody wants to have a maid, yeah. I think, is it? I've got his book here somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, he did eventually. And, and the publication date is after that program that we had. But but yeah, apparently he just took the syllabus. And I mean, fair game. There's fair nothing game. wrong with this. But t- took the syllabus that he gave us the compressed version of in a single evening mm-hmm. and turned it into a book. And it's a very good book. I recommend it. Yep. Uh, Jack Vertel, um, title TK, because I can't remember what it's called. Okay. Note, the title of the book is The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built. By Jack Vertel, that's V-I-R. T-E-L. Yeah, I, so it seems like funny thing happened on the Word of the Forum is a uh, is second only to a line in winter. <laughs> the line okay. in winter. Is... That's that's true. This one's a glaring omission on our part, Glenn. Wanda Ventham, uh, you complimented her on her hat mm-hmm. in It's Your Funeral. 
she's the the one who uh, goes into the computer room and says, Today's activities prognosis on number six. Number two requires it. Daily progress report for number six. Number two requires it. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Um, cool hat, cool cape. Uh-huh. She is the mother of one Benedict Cumberbatch. Really? Really? Steve M. says so. I, I have checked his math on this, and uh-huh. I can confirm. We probably should have caught that. Oh, really? Boy, okay. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> you don't think so? I mean, uh, she's not using her professional name of Cumberbatch, so... <laughs> and actually, didn't they kind of... I think he made Benedict that Benedict Ventham? Yeah, I think he decided that he would use, like, I think it might be a stage name, Benedict Cumberbatch, so so that he yeah. would be, it's the Engelbert, Engelbert Humperdinck theory where you just get a crazy mm. name so people remember it. I mean, Wanda Ventham passes that test. That's true. I, I have lamented the paucity of Latter-day Doris's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I miss you, Grandma. Um, I would extend that to Wanda's. Maybe the popularity of WandaVision will, will lead us into a glorious Wanda resurgence because that is another name I would like to, to have back yep. in circulation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, superheroes, a lot of superheroes have kind of archaic names because they were, you know, invented back in either the 30s or the 60s. And <laughs> you don't see too many Bruces anymore. You don't see too many Loises in the world. But that's, yeah. that should change. All right. I think you have another one for us, Glenn. I do. This is from Michael. Simply Michael. Hey, guys. In one of the early podcasts, Chris wondered who voiced the U.S. trailers. Just dawned on me who it most likely is. Paul Fries, a.k.a. The Man of a Thousand Voices. He was a prolific voice actor and contemporary of Mel Blanc. He'd worked in radio often as a narrator or actor in shows such as Suspense and The Green Lantern. Uh, cartoons. Suspense. And A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. That. Is that you knowing this radio show? Yes, that's okay. the, yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. I have a bunch of them on the obsolete, no longer made iPod that I don't know what I'm going to do when it finally dies, but it's plugged into a little speaker in my headboard, and I use it to play old-time radio shows to uh, lull me to sleep at night, Glenn. Okay. Sometimes suspense, frequently yours truly, Johnny Dollar, sometimes Lux Radio Theater. Mm-hmm. I am literally piping old-time radio into my brain as I, I drift off and, and just, just let it permeate my subconscious uh the shadow knows cartoons such as rocky right. and bullwinkle worked with comedian spike jones and stan freeberg voiced the haunted mansion probably not the mansion itself probably various characters in the haunted mansion <laughs> and bits in pirates of the caribbean for disneyland and even uncredited work as the voice of toshiro mufuni for mufuni's english-speaking roles in grand prix and midway give a listen wow. to some of his work and go back to the trailers i'm nearly dead certain it's freeze i am also now that he's mentioned it i can see this guy's face i can hear this guy's voice and i think it definitely is paul freeze excellent didn't he also voice tigger i think he <laughs> maybe i'm thinking of somebody else only i had access to some kind of machine yeah. That would. Well, decades from now, all things will be possible. Uh, Paul? Nope. Paul Winchell. Different, <laughs> different, different, different guy. Different Paul. Different Paul. Wow. If I have seen the animated Winnie the Pooh that uh, has a talking tigger in it, then I, I don't remember. I assume there's there's just one canonical version. There, there's probably been like a more recent like CGI Winnie the Pooh. Or oh, something. there have been. There have been several. But like, like he was the original cartoon uh, that uh, lots of folks grew up with on The Wonderful World of Disney and other things like that. Ah, okay. I wonder if I can find that on Disney+. Plus. The, wonderful, the wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, flouncy, pouncy, trouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful <laughs> thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. But again, Paul Winchell, <laughs> not Paul Freeze, immaterial. <laughs> Does not wow. speak to the present moment. All right. I'm still going to see if I can find that on, on Disney+. Plus. I think I did look for the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh and, yeah. and came up empty. For now. All right. For now. Uh, yes. The subject line is a harmonious episode. The author is Michael C. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with the, the previous Michael. Mm-hmm. Hi, guys. Thanks for another episode. I tend to like living in harmony, not because I love Westerns so much, but because I like the tropes that have traded back and forth between Westerns and samurai films. Sure. Kurosawa's work has led me to watch more Westerns and read more noir novels than I would have on my own, of course, of course, like The the Seven Samurai becoming The Magnificent Seven and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. I believe uh, Yojimbo also becomes... uh, Yojimbo turns into a Western, too. Which, Which one is that? The... There, I think there, there have been like several Western mm-hmm. versions of, of Yojimbo. There was one in the 90s with Bruce Willis called Last Man Standing, but that was definitely not the first one. All right. Likewise, you guys are respo- responsible for a couple of book purchases. Hadn't heard of Alex Cox's book because it came out since the last time I did a serious dive into The Prisoner, but I picked it up and I'm reading it as though your episodes catch up to his chapters. 
And I was able to order Ian Rakoff's book as well to add to my collection, including the gallery-sized book of the 70s failed comic book I shared on Twitter. Okay, oh, so yeah. this must be the, yeah, the yeah. guy who sent us the, the, the photo of the, was that the Kirby? Yeah, I think so. Like sort of abandoned. All right. Yeah, we will, we will give that a, a signal boost. One thing I was surprised by, this is still in Living in Harmony, is no one brought up the child who was just watching the fight. <laughs> Timestamp, 26 minutes, 28 seconds. He may be one of two in the background during the fight being held onto by their parents. I know children oh. figure in our next episode, but I don't recall seeing them before this episode in the watching order. Thanks for sharing the podcast. Letting me watch the episodes again. It's fun revisiting these, Mike. Okay. Um, yeah, somebody did point out that there is there is an incongruously dressed child, like a child who is not in Western uh, garb, eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties, you know, whatever, whatever era. Yeah, we're supposed to be in. Who might have just been visiting the set that day, or like I don't know what the childcare situation was in uh, England in nineteen sixty seven. As uh, as Starbucks cups are to Game of Thrones, children apparently yeah. are too. Or to uh, the prisoner, I, I didn't see him. I don't see children. I just uh, just as a general, yeah just no as a I, I don't, they're they're invisible to my eyes. <laughs> Subject line: Information, information, information. Uh-huh. Making a big promise. First of all, thank you for the perfectly adequate podcast. There we go. See, this is all I this is all I want. This is this. Glenn's skin tone is unchanged. He seems perfectly comfortable. Uh, there's there's no steam coming out of his ears. This you, is you get me, and I appreciate that the right level of acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. It certainly provides something to occupy my ears for an hour of driving or cooking each week. That's, that's, that would be the goal. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, Glenn is eating it up. Passive occupation. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. That's, that was, that was I wanted to bring intent. a couple of pieces of prisoner ephemera to your attention. First, in the mid-70s, Marvel Comics apparently had the right to create a comic book based on the prisoner. It was never published, but the complete first issue, penciled by the great Jack Kirby and partially inked and lettered by Mike Royer. Mm-hmm. Okay, obviously I know Jack King Kirby, I don't know Mike Royer, has surfaced. I don't think it was the best match of subject and creator, but it is a fascinating document, and I love the Kirby Tech version of the control room. All right, well, I will throw that up on our, our Instagram. Because, yeah, I mean, you can you can just imagine that, right? All the, the 70s new gods, you know, the living machines and, and all that, like Kirby going crazy with yeah. the, the seesaw control Not, room. It, it, the village's aesthetic seems much more restrained and even austere compared to Kirby's usual aesthetic, yes. which is all Kirby dots and flames and maximalist. Maximalist, yeah. yes. Next, you've played the prisoner-related songs from Iron Maiden, but have you heard "I Helped Patrick Baguin Escape" by The Times? No relation to Morris Day, presumably. It's a delightful slice of XTC-ish power pop with a regrettably low-res video that recreates the show. Okay. Do you know that song, Glenn? I, I helped Pat McGowan escape. I don't know that song, but I love XTC, so. I do know that you love XTC. I don't know enough about XTC. It's it's Andy Partridge, right? Was yep. he the main like singer songwriter then? And I think he suffered from stage fright or something. Like performing was very difficult for him. You are remarkably caught up for somebody who says he doesn't know much about XTC. Yes. Okay. I like what what little I know. I should know more. This is a good place for us to tease an episode that should have come out before now, but I, full disclosure, messed it up badly and basically had to start re-editing again from scratch with Sophia Cassiola and Michael Epstein, Mm -hmm. who uh, are filmmakers, creative partners, life partners, who make movies together. But uh, about a decade ago, they did a shot-for-shot recreation of the opening titles of The Prisoner, just a remarkable level of fidelity Mm -hmm. in this thing. As a music video, they ended up doing a series of videos, one tied to each episode of The Prisoner. They perform music as a duo under the name Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Like their entire band is inspired by The Prisoner. So that is, uh, however (laughs) niche this show is, that might be more niche. Yep. 
uh, yeah, we have a conversation with them that uh, we will bring to you soon. And um, their music is on on Bandcamp, and uh, we recommend it. Again, the the title of the band is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And we will, of course, link to all of their their videos, including that astonishing recreation of the the opening title. All right, shot uh, in and around Boston, and yet passes right. uh, very respectable passes for London. They got the Lotus and everything. Mm-hmm. We were shocked when they told us it was Boston mm-hmm. because it it really does look like London. Mm-hmm. Um, oh boy. Okay. And lastly, a challenge, and this could take up an entire episode. To feel free to cut this part. Ooh. If you were going to reboot The Prisoner today. In the current post-prestige TV streaming landscape, how would you do it? Lay out your format, mythology, overall premise, what network or service you think it would fit, and any stars or other creative personnel you would want involved. Ignore the existence of the AMC miniseries. I think everyone does. Well, complete us that we are. We are going to talk about the AMC series. Thanks, Eric J. Oh, God. I... Yeah, that's a big... Just, that should be... Yeah, he's right. It should be its own uh, episode. We should We should think about it cogitate upon it and actually come up with uh, some suggestions and, and share them with each other uh, in an episode because I can't think of anything up top of my damn head. Yeah, right. I have to defer to uh, Patty McGee and say that I think the only person who could be number six now is Mel Gibson. I mean, mm. that's just... Uh... <laughs> I think he's the only person who could channel number six's charisma and... Um... Liam Neeson... His ability to see the humanity in everyone around him. Sure. Liam Neeson can do rage. Um, throttled anger, omnidirectional rage is a requirement of the part, <laughs> which is one reason I think Caviezel just didn't have it. He's just, he's felt, he's just seemed a little too passive. Yeah. Uh, who Although else? apparently he's a big uh, QAnon guy now. But Grievance... He, he, might, he might be able to do it now. <laughs> yeah, but, but Grievance is not the same thing as rage. <laughs> so... <laughs> Being, you know, neck, neck deep in grievance is not necessarily the the vibe we're going for here. What's Lewis Black doing? You know, he, he would have some he would have some range. <laughs> I'm picturing an SNL sketch, the like oh. the the prisoner auditions, right? You know how they have you you get to see Christopher Walken's Han Solo and, sure. and all that. There's Alan Alda auditioning for Top Gun, mm-hmm. or a sturdy subgenre of SNL mm-hmm. skits, just based on what impressions the current cast. Has in their back. You know what, Wanda Sykes. I'm just going to say it. Why not throw Wanda Sykes in the mix? <laughs> she can do it. She's my she's my guy, as it were. Wow. Okay. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle Don is number Cheadle. six. Don Cheadle could do it. Yeah. Um, he can do anything. He can do anything. He can do anything. You know, uh, a situation like this is a high potentiality for the common motherfucker to bitch out. Our guy Henry C. Henry Cavill doesn't have the. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say it, but does not have the dimensionality required. Could, what do you mean a d- dimensionality? I mean, he has every dimension except the vertical, Glenn. Yeah, okay. He has all all the other dimensions. I mean, seriously deficient in one dimension. Yeah. Uh, but the other dimensions seem seem all right. Elaborate, please. No, I'm just I'm just saying that there's a. Although in The Witcher, you know, he had showed more sides. Does um, he? I I have not seen The Witcher. Yeah, it's. And apparently, he's Highlander now. He's going to be the new. The I new mean, Highlander? Yeah, sure. There can be only one. Uh, believe it or not, I speak the truth. I, I have never seen Highlander. I haven't seen Highlander, the one with Sean Connery. I haven't mm-hmm. seen Highlander 2, The Quickening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a window to appreciate it unironically. That window has passed. Uh, so if you go, <laughs> if you do watch it, uh, just know that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the cachet. That perhaps it once did if you were a 14 year old. Isn't that slathered in Queen? Didn't Queen do the whole? Oh, yeah. Is it a score or is it a soundtrack album of. No? Why did I think this was your your kind of thing? I have not seen it since it came out in theaters. So. um, Okay. Yeah. I remember when we went to see Hail Caesar together one Mm -hmm. year during the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. You got very excited when Christopher Lambert came on screen. Yeah. A scene. I think just one scene. Just one. Do you enjoy physical culture, Eddie Mannix? Do you ski? No, I never took it up. Seems like a lot of fun. I no more associate with Diana Moran. I hug you. Goodbye. Do you enjoy physical culture? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yep. Yep, yep, It's Michael Gambon's movie, but... uh, it's, it's a lot of people's movies. It's a lot of people's movies, that movie. All right. I'm going to read David Lur's email. He has generously sent us another batch of suggestions for Push It, Stamp It, File It, etc. His second... Mm, 
Oh man, you were you were mad when he uh, he got to to Kurt Vile. Mm-hmm. Were you? This is not one that I thought of, but I'm but I, okay. I guess we're just not going to use this because I do want to steal it from him. Well, you only got one Push left, it, right? Like, this is the this is the thing. You only got one left. Yeah, but you think we're not going to keep doing this with all of our? I mean, we we did it in. Um, yeah, Ice Station Zebra. I guess. So, oh, man. do you want to retire this? Do you do I was you think hoping. this should not? <laughs> why? Because it's why? hard. It's hard to do. It's why. I figured it would go with. Uh, I forgot about Ice Station Zebra, and I was. I, I yes, I was surprised that you did it for Ice Station Zebra because I figured there was like, this is for the prisoner episodes proper. This is how we differentiate. I was them. only doing it because all of the references that you fairly accuse me of relying on too much are all gorly. Approved. Things. That's true. That's true. Okay. All things that he loves. Mm-hmm. Push it. Like Kevin Costner with a pram in Union Station when De Palma paid homage to the Odessa Step sequence in Battleship Potemkin. Yep. Fine, fine. He was pulling it and then let it go. Stupid yep. Kevin Costner. That's that's true. He was he was pulling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she was trying to the woman was trying to get up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Although, speaking of, Gorley actually had that actor, the woman with the pram, I remember. there too one time. Yep. Yeah. Great. Push it like Ben Affleck's dopey 2002 mystery series game show set in Nevada. Okay. Was Ben Affleck in something called Push It? I don't remember that, but I'm sure it's out there. File it like Madge doing your nails before soaking them in palm olive dishwashing. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Did Madonna do a palm olive commercial? Oh, oh, Madge. What are we talking about? Madge the manicurist was a uh, commercial spokesperson. For palm olive, palm olive soap. Yes, palm olive soap. So yes. All right. I just thought Madge was something that your people called Madonna. Uh, if we're British, if Incorrect? we're Brit- it's what the Brits call Madonna. Uh, okay. And uh, no, Madge was was a person. I can't remember the actress's name, but uh, she was around forever, and uh, she right. was an indelible part of the seventies culture. Index it like an eighty-story skyscraper in Dubai. The index, a 328-meter or 1,076-foot-tall building. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I guess that's the name of a building, yeah. but 80 stories, that that's not even notable. In, <laughs> do it, right? I mean, that, that's like half the height of the one in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, right. I think. Um, stamp it like the nickname for a player from the Calgary Stampeders of the Canadian Football League. Okay. Mm. I mean, you can't Brief argue it like, with it. It's, and, <laughs> it's, it's insoluble. Brief it like a rich, elderly, eccentric scientist in the Dragon Ball series, Dr. Brief, a.k.a. Dr. Briefs. Okay. I believe it. I'm not familiar with it. but No, I don't understand that one either. Number it like Olivia Coleman saying random integers until Robert Webb cries, that's number wang. Oh, yes. That's Mitchell and Webb. Yes. That's a, that's a very, that's number wang. What, what is that? It's a sketch comedy series starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb. Uh, British. Very funny. Hilarious, uh, and they have a sketch where it's just this game show okay. that with impenetrable rules that nobody really understands how to play. But um, that's the joke. It can't be that old because Olivia Coleman. She, it was one of the first things that she uh, came to mind. I'm, I'm thinking this is like the aughts, right? Okay. This is the aughts. Um, right. When she's in Hot Fuzz, for she's one of sure. the the one of the police women in Hot Fuzz. Yes, I think it's right before yeah, that, uh, before okay. or after that. Um, he didn't do debrief though. He skipped debrief. Yeah. Zero out of six for debris. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is something I forgot to mention last time I wrote in. You two had wondered who voiced the episode preview for the CBS airings. I haven't found any documentation for it, but listening to them, it sounds remarkably like Paul Free. There we go. Tons of voiceover work for cartoons, the Rankin-Bass holiday special. Yep. He was the Burgermeister Meisterburger, There example, you as... go. That's where it is. <laughs> God, yes. Yes. As well as all four of the Beatles in the Beatles cartoons from 1965. Mm-hmm. Ludwig von Drake for Walt Disney, countless voices for J. Ward Productions, and the voice of K.A.R.R. on Knight Rider. Oh, hey. As opposed to the K.A.R.R. from Hill Street Blues. <laughs> That's his parenthetical, not, not mine. Okay. His voice is very distinct, and this one is uncannily close to it. If it's not him, it's someone doing a really good impression Boilerplate, praise, praise, etc. David. Cool. Paul Freeze. All right. Did we talk about Carr before? 
Uh, well, was Car like like the nemesis of Kit yes. on Knight Rider. I mean, I watched Knight Rider, and I my brother and I tortured my parents into getting us the Talking Knight Rider two, locating two of the the toys with where you press the license plate, and you know Kit would say one of four or six my calls. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> each one beginning with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah, and God, boy, I don't, I don't think we we displayed sufficient gratitude on Christmas morning for uh, uh, yes. their their Herculean efforts to obtain these hot toys. But uh, I don't remember Kit having an opposite. Oh, number. I do. I mean, everybody had they were, everybody had an evil twin, and so Kit stands for Night Industries Two Thousand, and Car. Uh-huh. Oh, jeez, I don't remember what Car stands for. K A R R. Special executive or counterterrorism? No. Nope. Special uh, the, the special executive for extortion, counterterrorism. Night automated oh. roving robot. That is sweaty. That is really trying too <laughs> hard. That is. You don't need uh, theoretically. I mean, you. I would say you don't need. Automated if you've got robot. I don't think you need roving if you've got robot. <laughs> I don't think you name need to, to name a fucking car uh, an acronym that spells car. Uh-huh. It can either be a nonsense word like kit in its own. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's just a name. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one's bad. It, uh, what if rover was an acronym? What would that? Oh let's boy. let's retcon rover as an acronym. Uh, by the way, uh, car premiered in the uh, season one, episode nine, called Trust Doesn't Rust. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a quick pass on the title. Uh-huh. Trust don't rust. Yeah, it's better. It's better. Trust don't rust is it's better, better. Much better. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then kit versus car. And yeah. Okay. Kit's Creek. Mm, okay. Um. All right. Or just uh, Stephen King's Kit. Hmm. <sighs> The, the Kit Girl? Uh, Kit came from outer space. Uh, Kit's complicated. Okay. Slow down. Mm-hmm. Give others mm-hmm. a chance. Kit's a me, Mario. No, see. She's got to have Kit. She's got to have Kit. She's got to have Kit. This is good. Solid. Um. <laughs> I assume uh, Kit's a me, Mario stars Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. Uh, it certainly does. It certainly does. <laughs> and they just tool around, what, oh, hi. <laughs> I've never seen that either. That summer, I was all about Jurassic Park, The Fugitive uh-huh. in the Line of Fire, sure. Last Action Hero. Uh-huh. Yeah, No Jury in the World is going to uh, hold it against you that you haven't seen Super Mario Brothers in the theater. That's that's fine. fine. <laughs> Night Automated Roving Robot. It's not a robot. It's a car. <laughs> anyway terrible mm-hmm. it does look like he's two-toned in a way that uh, kit was not maybe that's just the photo hmm. but i think i think they were exactly alike but i i don't know this is not oh is, is it also a trans am yep does it have the little light you know the side to side light like kit has in the in the hood you know what i'm talking it does. about yep, the, yep, yep. because metro buses have they those do now. and 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 have for a while yep and cylons did before before them, right. so yes, it's a whole thing. Yeah, made me very happy the first time I saw <laughs> it because you know Battlestar Galactic was still on and the Metro buses look like Cylons. Okay, maybe that should be our next subject. Oh Glenn. boy, maybe maybe we should do the bad '70s Battlestar Galactica. Only if we can do Battlestar 1980, the short-lived follow-up series. <laughs> oh, that's the one that's set on Earth. That's the one that's set on Earth. Entire... It's so bad. Okay, it's so bad, and it's. I think it's only available on. <laughs> YouTube in bits and pieces, but uh, excellent. Excellent. Wow, okay, we better get to it, because my, my battery indicator here is looking 
the way my gas gauge looked. Oh, right. On the way down here. Glenn, I can't believe you've never seen Chicago. <laughs> I've seen Chicago entirely too many times. You, my friend, you, theater critic Chris Klimek, has never seen Actually, the movie issue. You have seen it on Broadway. Yes. Well, it, yes, and I've also now seen the movie. Yes, but none of the Broadway production la- lasted with you, right? This was I mean, all like it, it was a, a either the night before or the night after I saw Spider-Man turn off the dark. Okay, you know? that, so uh, there were far fewer cast injuries in Chicago. Did, did people hurl themselves onto the floor? There was, were, were, was there any actual cast injuries? No there? green got... No, I think they had pretty much um, locked it down okay. by the time I saw it, like two years after yeah. <laughs> they started doing... After... 42 months of previews. They, they managed to complete a performance without any, any Spider-Man right. being injured. I actually thought of it recently in uh, In the Heights movie, the, yeah. the film version of In the Heights, when uh, Benny and, um, I'm forgetting the name of the character, who's Benny's love interest, but when they're, they have a song late in the show where they're, they're out on a balcony and then they step sideways onto the building and, uh, you know, it's very Burt Ward and Adam West sure. climbing the bat rope. Um, but, uh, yeah, the way that... It seamlessly blended from a live-action shot of them singing on a real balcony into an animated building. So that was the first time I had thought of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark in many years <laughs> at that, that moment. So we're doing this mailbag segment just to celebrate the fact that we're here together. Together, IRL. In the same space. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and this, no, this RL is pretty, pretty nice. It's, it's, our... it's delightful. It, it is the... Uh, which way are we facing right we're, now? We're facing due west. Okay, so this is the western... Porch? Western porch. I was trying to think of a manlier word than porch, Glenn. Deck? This is the... Deck the, sounds harder. Yep, harder it here. does sound... No, deck is west in the deck. right direction. West deck. I am west deck. I am a gay porn star named West Deck. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> this is the... Um, Mm, I don't know Western Western emplacement. This is the Western emplacement. Emplacement sounds of very Glenn's <laughs> remote mountain stronghold. Yeah, it's not that remote. But it's yeah. uh, no, it's 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 strong. And it's you, old. You hold a deed I, for I hold, it. I hold it, and I'm strong. It's, it's actually not remote now. Now it is. It is beneath my feet, beneath my <laughs> ass. We are outside. We're both vaccinated, fully yep. vaccinated. We got our chips in us. I wanted to make a feature of the fact that uh, we're here among nature. And so, we promised that I would the next time this would happen, I would make Chris watch Chicago. Right. So it's really he, just about establishing your credibility, making yeah. it known that you're a man of your word. That's, and this, in fact, happened. And and tell me things. Uh, enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. I was trying to come up with a, another example of a musical film where the numbers are visibly performed on a stage aside from allowing for camera placement and all that they are staged much as they would be on stage on a on a broadway stage down to the point where the you see the lights overhead and everything it's not the kind of um you know generally in filmmaking the lights are not in frame (laughs) sure i think we have to go back to pennies from heaven the um dennis Dennis Hopper? No, not Dennis Hopper. The, the Dennis Hopper musical? No, it's it is yeah. a musical. Uh, it, but it is a musical where um, it, it's all taking place in the twenties, in the in the depression, thirties, depression, mm. and then things just erupt, erupt into musical numbers. But uh, we can still see that they are clearly musical numbers mm-hmm. that performed on stages. I think that's kind of how we have to go back. That's like Steve Martin and. Bernadette Peters in the 70s. I think that's okay. where we go back to. So when Chicago debuted as a, a stage show, mm-hmm. there should be a word for this, a, you know, diagetic versus non-diagetic. There uh, is a word for it. I never the, know what it is. Yeah, <laughs> okay. cannot keep it straight. Right. Yes. Well, you've, you've referred to Kurt File many times. We mm-hmm. do like to Kurt File things mm-hmm. on this this show mm-hmm. and uh, that acknowledging the, the existence of the audience, the breaking the fourth wall, owning the artifice. Mm-hmm. Of the thing. Yeah, so we'll have to decide what I am now subjecting you to. 
Yeah. Next in uh, this idea of for, me for making you watch a thing and you making me watch a thing. This could mm-hmm. be. We could. This has legs. Might be mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Mm-hmm. The last three epistles to come in have Can all I? come from from women. Glenn, this is heartening to me. It this is, is super heartening because super this heartening. is such a. I mean, this is a a show right. about a guy who is but a dude a who jerk doesn't like to women who doesn't and, like women. Yeah. Yeah, and I was really afraid that the the listenership would be just just all. Dudes, and I'm I'm glad it's not. I'm right. really glad it's not. I, I find that heartening. All right, I'm going to pass <laughs> the the um. And can I just letter opener? I just let me just uh, clarify. Let me just mm. uh, stipify that um, it's not that I don't like praise. Mm-hmm. I love praise. I am thirsty for praise. What I don't like is people talking about how good their podcast is on their podcast. I don't like that. But I, I mean, I feel like, names, like we so acknowledge like... our mediocrity uh, pretty uh, readily. Dear Glenn and Chris, I enjoy a degree absolutely very much. Yada, yada, yada. I had not watched The Prisoner before, but wanted to listen to your podcast and have context for what you were both talking about. Wow, that is... <laughs> I don't understand this person. This is That seems, that seems like a... I regularly listen to... Uh, I don't really like burgers, but there's this mustard that I wanted to try. The Prisoner is not my cup of tea, not even without sugar and a lemon lemon slice, (laughs) but I really like a degree absolute, and I'm seeing it through. My husband has seen snatches of The Prisoner when he has walked through the room, so I'm watching it, and he has often been confused. He's not alone, uh, my friend Claire. Uh, It's always during a weird scene, though, in fairness, that's basically all the show. Salient point. Excellent point. I played him the first 10 minutes of your episode, Living in Harmony, Demonstrate how much fun your podcast is. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't I didn't give Glenn the opportunity to redact uh, the, the offending portions of this, this very nice... But he was impressed nice... with your intro, Chris. He was impressed with your intro, Chris. I, I think that... Uh, about your guns? That one, about your guns? And I don't think that was it. That one it maintains one doesn't have to keep up with the prisoner to enjoy the podcast. Uh, to which I figure I've come and fair to finish it out. Uh, watching the girl who was death right now, enjoying it more than living in harmony. Fair, I mean, I- inevitable. Uh, though of course we're not in the village anymore. I agree. Uh, all of a sudden, number six is probably making up the story in his head or something. I've seen a hand turning book pages with the pics of the on-screen. Wait, wait, wait. Action. So, so is this email being sent mid-episode? I think like it is. <laughs> okay. And he's dressed as Sherlock Holmes for some reason. Mm-hmm. Ho boy. I would correct that to who boy, but uh, keep up the good work. I mean, sure. This is this is fun. Why did you have me read this, Chris? Because there's nothing really here. Oh, that, like, okay. Is, Sorry. Like, like, there's no there's no like uh, theory. Pres- I mean, it's nice. It's true. No, that that did kind of violate um, the conditions that it agreed to. I, I I think I wanted to just show you some evidence just for the the that notion they, that there are even people who who don't like the prisoner can can like. Yeah. Can can tolerate our show. <laughs> they can maintain tolerance for our show. Here we go. All right. This is um Oh, this this one is fresh off the this this person made it all the way through the girl who was death. Oh, before. hey. Good, good, good. <laughs> Citizens Advice Bureau. I think the children in in the village are either one, kids of the workers in control of the labs, hospital, etc., who need evening child care. That's an excellent point. That's exactly what it is. It's <laughs> so, never occurred to me before, but that's exactly what so it is. So let's leave them with this this dude we're trying to break. Yeah. Uh, or more ominously, two, children kept at the village to make sure the prisoner villagers do what the guardians want or encourage the villagers to give information. Wow. Got much darker. When I saw the children, it hit me differently than when I saw this years ago. Back then, I didn't have kids. This time, my first thought was the kids were there to keep certain prisoners in line. There is nothing to indicate this, but as Glenn mentioned, why are the kids there? They don't have information, but maybe their parents do. Mm, the podcast, Roseanne. I love that. I love the fact that they are the they are like the staffers, like the kids. They are like the kids <laughs> the of the st- of the warders yeah. of the women who, and men in in fantastic hats who are saying. Uh, <laughs> Uh, progress report. Daily prognosis report for number six. Exactly number two requires what it. I was trying to say. Yes. Yes. Benedict Cumberbatch's mom. Yes. In <laughs> fact, that's a thing. Wanda. V- uh, God. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a hell of a hell of a good name. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Roseanne. Oh, this one. Uh, this one goes back to A, B, and C. Wow. I don't want a hint. I want you. <laughs> I am watching the. Pr- this is uh, 
Kendra R. I'm watching The Prisoner with my 17-year-old son, who is a huge fan of the show after watching it a few years ago with a different rewatch podcast. Oh, <laughs> Say the name. Say the name. Uh, we can, we can, uh, the Re-Prisoner. Never heard of it. But the Re-Prisoner. Re I, 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 I will pay attention to it now. She says something now about my other podcast. I am only up to the third episode, but listening to your discussion, I had to write. Good. I like this. This mm -hmm. is she was she was What's your other podcast? Call to Action. Fishing with Glenn. Yep. yep uh. That's exactly what it is. First, <laughs> thank you for the explanation of the milk. I was saw it as impossibly wholesome. So of its time that a man would drink glasses of milk at work, it's gross. And it just seemed <laughs> odd. But when you talked about increasing threat of number one, and now I have to watch the size of that phone, yeah, you do. Uh, it all made much more sense. So basically this is number one. Drinking milk because he because this is what we used to tell people who had ulcers. This is not a thing right. we tell people now because we now know that ulcers right. are a. It's almost a genetic thing. Like it's not mm -hmm. like a. It's like you're born with this. Yeah. This uh, enzyme. This virus. This. Whatever you uh, you recently um, the the occasion of the the tragic death of of the great Charles Grodin prompted you yeah. to revisit Midnight Run. One yeah. Of, one of your great. Oversights where, yeah. I, as I recall, Robert De Niro spends much of the movie seeking milk for, yeah, for his yeah, ulcer. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. Charles Grodin, much more fun in that movie than Bobby De Niro. Uh, but I have to disagree with you about the scene in the dream where they couldn't provide the theme of Bee's son. I thought it was very smart and entirely in the, keeping with probably the name, Na name of Bee's son. Keeping with the logic they set up. People did odd things in the episode. Yes, they did in Six's Dream. And we were told that he was seeing what he thinks he would they would do. It's entirely dependent upon what Six thinks would happen in that instance. When it starts asking B the, all these questions, it I think he sees it her as a fake. For that reason, his mind isn't going to provide the answer. If she's a fake, she wouldn't know the answer. So he's not imagining her providing it. If two wants that to change, he's going to have to make it happen. Okay, so what are we saying here? That's when we're in the garden, in the topiary. And yes. she has this amazing and, uh, glass. That um, Carol Burnett-looking lady. She, she's, she's handsome. Right. Handsome lady. She says, uh, let's, let's get distressed together. I think mm -hmm. that's it. Or something like that. What takes us out of this episode is that um, she says things that the village would know. The village would know. Right. Like the village would have this in their file. Yeah. And maybe. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have the time of number six's birth. They didn't have his tea preference. So mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. omissions mm -hmm. in their yeah. database. This is a strange but entirely entirely enjoyable show, Sar. Plus, uh, such a great way to spend time with my teenager. Oh, that's nice. And your content and <laughs> insights are so helpful. He asked me to update him every time I listen to an episode after watching the associated episode of the show. I'll probably end up emailing again and hope it's not an intrusion. It really totally isn't. <laughs> it's just so fun to be watching and listening to this strange, wonderful show. We agree. It's a strange, wonderful show. Yes. If it were completely consistent and explicable, I, I don't think I would like it no. nearly as much. No, that's exactly it. If it was tidy. Because even the Avengers, the... You know, show you love with the Emma Peel and yes. the John Steed. That is explicable. That has agents extraordinary. But this isn't. This is weird. This is an outlier. Yeah. This uh, Brian Clemens, one of the I, I should have known this before, but he before he became I think the primary writer on the Avengers for many of its seasons. Anyway, he was he was a Danger Man vet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Danger Man did not have the whimsy of, true. of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Did something happen with the spy, the British spy genre, where it broke? Because <laughs> sure, the Avengers is very fun and very whimsical. Yeah, and and what I were there some occasion for me to revisit all of the Avengers episodes in mm -hmm. sequence. I, I can't God. imagine what. Uh, oh my God! What, what circumstances would have to develop for that tiresome, to happen? Tiresome, but, tiresome, but, tiresome. Uh, but yes. Well, because I know the the Diana Rigg seasons mm -hmm. best. I'm wondering now if the Honor Blackman seasons that preceded those were as they leaned as hard into the humor and surreality as Diana Rigg, or if that just came because Diana Rigg was great at playing those kinds of scenes mm -hmm. off of Patrick McNee. I mean, I know the first season of that show, it was Patrick McNee and Ian Hendry, mm -hmm. and I haven't seen any of those, because mm -hmm. who cares? No, sure. <laughs> but then... 
Honor Blackman is, is in, and then she gets cast in Goldfinger and leaves, yeah. and then Diana Rigg is there until she gets cast in a Bond movie. But I'd like to think that the tone of that show developed over time to emphasize the strength of the performers. used to using the telephone. Ran out of small change. Well, are you? Hmm? Busy at the moment. What did you have in mind? I want you to meet a bird. Friend of yours? Hardly. I intend basting it in red wine, submerging it in a succulent sauce. Now that sounds like my kind of bird. There's only one snag. What? I haven't shot. But the through line is McNay, right? Yeah, he's okay, there. So he's there from beginning to end. He doesn't change, right? He he is the he is the he's the thing that inserts the archness. Yeah, but I can't imagine he. I mean, I need to. I I really haven't seen any of the the initial Ian Hendry episodes yeah. but i mean i've read that they're much more straight laced and okay. okay yeah but <laughs> one of the things we talked about chris is that um we should have talked much more about the avengers in the girl who was death episode yeah. because that's all that was right right now i've not seen the avengers in a real way but i knew this was riffing on something i felt it was riffing on something yeah well, and, and I mean, I don't know how much of a phenomenon the Avengers was at that time. I mean, by 67, early iconic, 68, right? I mean, it had been Emma on the Peer air for... Emma was iconic instantly, yeah, right? I think so. I mean, I, I, that show, I think, initially appeared the same time Danger Man did, and I don't think its run was interrupted the way, you know, Danger Man had that hiatus of two years or whatever it was before they, you know, lengthened it to an hour and, and changed other things about it. Right. It's certainly, it, that seems more of a, an Avengers parody than a than a Bond parody. It's it's harder to pull stuff from from the Avengers. It's a, there aren't as many phrases. I, I mean, Mrs. Peel were needed right. is the is the phrase that that sticks in my mind, and that often is not even spoken aloud. It's it's um, you know sometimes delivered in writing, right. but it's um, iconic in the abstract as opposed to iconic like the way Bond is. Like we know we we can see Bond films over and over again, but like you need to do some research to to see an uh, Avengers episode. But yeah. she permeated the culture, and it is her. It's not John Steed. I'm sorry. It's not John Steed. Oh, yes, he's got no. an umbrella. The the and, bowler. And the, the bowler. Uh, yeah. But it's her. He is, uh, she is what infiltrated them into the culture, and it's not like something we can go back and revisit all the time with, like, going back to see a Bond movie. It's, yeah. television is temporal. Te- television yeah. is very temporal, and so... You can tell people, oh, yeah, this was like a cultural thing. Like, we can tell people, oh, X-Files was a mm-hmm. huge deal. But you there, to... there was an Avengers feature in 1998 that I think pretty much ended the career of director Jeremiah yep. Chechik. It's the guy he'd made Benny and June before that. And yep. I don't think he got to direct another feature after that movie. Yep. It was such a colossal flop. Oh, I, yeah, I, I saw it by myself. There was no one who wanted to go was see it, it with me. Ray yeah, Fiennes? it was Ray Fiennes, Uma, Uma Thurman, and Sean Connery. Oh, boy. The movies. Now is the winter of your discontent. Is that a thing that he yes, says in that movie? Yes, it's a thing that he says. Oh, He's yeah. a villain who builds a weather manipulation machine, and he wears a giant teddy bear costume at one point, Glenn. Okay, well, good for him. Yeah. There are a lot of scenes in the trailer, a lot of lines in the trailer that are not in the movie. I, w- I would oh, love to. Yeah, no, I mean, I, w- I would sign. love to know what happened. I mean, apparently this, this is, you know, a film that was radically shortened immediately prior to its release and yeah last time i looked into this i just saw that its director did not have any feature credits after oh, man. after the avengers so i don't know i think we should investigate further glenn yep i agree so um rolling into once upon a time penultimate episode a sort of accidental two-parter was it aired as a two-parter it's the only one that really ends on a cliffhanger right it it ends with the supervisor telling number six that he's going to take him to to number Mm -hmm. one which was clearly not the original ending um because they reshot it and there's a shot anyway we'll get into this no need need to talk about this but yes all right once upon a time next week getting close getting close very good. Getting, feeling uh, feeling pretty penultimate. 1600. Okay. Penultimate Sylvania Avenue. Okay. Wow. All right, Glenn. Be seeing you. Be seeing you.
Every Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark and her brother, Jonathan Clark. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com or VitalVoiceTraining.com. This song is Once Upon a Time, performed by Sophia Cassiola and Michael Epstein. Their band is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. You can find their music on Bandcamp. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at not a number pod and on Instagram at a degree absolute. Rate, review, subscribe to our show on Apple, Stitcher, whatever platform you use to hear our podcast. If you leave us a five star review with your wildest prisoner take, we will read that take on a future episode. Finally, I just need to tell you here that every cliche you've ever heard about how crazy show business is is completely true. Leo McKern has been dead for nearly 20 years, still needs his agent's permission to be a guest on our show. Degree absolute. I require approval. about tiggers is tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, flouncy, pouncy, trouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about tiggers is I'm the only one.